If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn uh, for the last time to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 25 through 28 tonight. 25 through 28. The title of this sermon is The Final Last Word. Last week we saw... Uh, the final words of, uh, of Paul to the Thessalonica, Thessalonican Christians. Uh, and today we see uh, the final last words. He had something else to say to them. And uh, thinking about the final things, I, I have to admit that I'm a sucker for se- series finales or season finales. Uh, the finale of, of a show that I've uh, gotten into, I just, I just love it when they... Uh, when writers and and uh, and folks bring kind of the series to the close, I mean, I like season finales, but the series finales I really look forward to. My favorite one recently uh, was from the BBC production of Sherlock, um, and if you haven't seen that, it's a great series. Um, it's probably one of the best uh, uh, the best renditions of Sherlock that you'll see. Um, really done well by the BBC. And at the end of the, the show, um, I, I kind of don't want to give it away, but I kind of want to give it away. I, I've always, since I saw it about two years ago, I wanted to work it into a sermon because it's so good. It's such a good sermon illustration, and I haven't been able to do it. And so I'm cheating, and I'm going to work it into the sermon today. Okay, let me just tell you what it is. The whole series is about whether or not Sherlock Holmes is a, is a uh, what kind of man is he? Is he a great man or not? And, uh, and so it's three seasons, and it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of different episodes about asking that main question. Is he a, a great man, or is he not a great man? And at the very end, there's an officer, after Sherlock has solved his last big, big crime, and he, there's an officer that sees Sherlock Holmes, and he's a young officer, and he turns to the older officer that has been antagonistic toward Sherlock Holmes uh, through this whole um, series, and he, the young officer turns to the older officer and he says, that's Sherlock Holmes. And the older officer says, yes, I know. And he goes, he's a great man. And then the older officer says, he's better than that. He's a good man. Okay. Not only was Sherlock Holmes a great man, he was a good man. That's a great sermon illustration. Somehow I haven't been able to figure out where to work it in, but I've done it today. So there it is. I love that ending. It culminated Everything that that series was working toward is Sherlock Holmes good. Well, uh, today in this passage, the Apostle Paul is kind of working everything together for us. He's putting a nice, neat little bow on the end of the book of uh, Thessalonians, the first first book of Thessalonians. And his final words really drive home his entire purpose of writing this book. And we need to pay attention to these four final things that he says to them. Uh, it's kind of vindication for everything that he said before. It's the conclusion to everything that he said before. And it's the ringing last note that he wants to leave with these Christians and with us. So let me read these four verses for us and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you today. Brothers... Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Father, we thank you for giving us this, uh, this word today. We pray that you would be at work in it and through it by the work of the Spirit, that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ and the grace that you give us through him so that the grace of the Lord can be ours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning I want to look at this in four ways. Um, First of all, we see a final request. Secondly, we're going to see a final greeting. Thirdly, a final oath. And then fourthly, a final reminder. So first of all, a final request. Paul says, brothers, pray for us. And I've said this a couple of times as we've worked through uh, uh, this book. But Paul's letters really could be described as prayers. I mean, they are letters, but he begins and ends his his book with prayers. He says, this is how I've been praying for you. This is what I pray for. And then at some point in his books, he also kind of tells them what, what the people he's writing to should be praying for and how they should be praying. And we saw that a few weeks ago in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, in prayer, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Okay, He's taught them how to pray. He's modeled prayer in his own prayer life, but he's also commanded prayer in how we should pray. And then finally, at the end, he says, I have one request of you. Brothers, pray for us. What he means is pray for me, Paul, as I am doing this work of ministry, but also pray for Timothy and for Titus, and for Barnabas, and for all those that are with him that are doing this work of ministry. They need prayer. And what we see in this is that Paul understands something really important about himself. Paul is absolutely and completely dependent upon God for success in his ministry. And that is important for us because you need to understand and remember who Paul is. Um, Paul is not some scrub off the street that just decided one day to ordain himself and make himself a preacher and set up, you know, a, 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 you know, some kind of church to get people to come to him. He didn't do that, no. Paul was a great man. And Paul was highly respected prior to him becoming a Christian. He was rising in the ranks of Judaism He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was one of the most learned men of his day. He was putting everyone else to shame. Uh, One commentator said he was the kind of man that every Jewish mom would want her daughter to marry. That's what he was like. And he was a naturally gifted individual, naturally gifted through hard work. In all of those things, Paul understands something very important, that if it is left to Paul to do the work of ministry then he will be a massive failure. As gifted as he is, he knows he needs help. But more than just help, he needs the Lord to be at work. He is dependent upon the Lord. He knows his own heart, and that's important. Paul knows that in all of the things that he's been encouraging the the, uh, Thessalonian Christians in, and all the things that he's been talking to them about, about not leaving Christ because of who Christ is, that Paul knows his heart is the very same way. He's undergoing the same persecution that they are. He is facing the same kind of trials and suffering 
And he knows that there could come a time when he would want to leave Christ. So he says, pray for us. Paul uh, understands that he can't do it on his own and in fact needs the Lord to do the work. He's on the razor's edge of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. So he needs the prayer of God's people. Okay, now that's the Apostle Paul. Paul, the greatest minister apart from Jesus and John the Baptist who ever lived, needs the prayer of God's people. Here's your application. I'm not Paul. (laughs) And the elders of this church are not the elders of the early church who received the instruction from the apostles. The elders of this church, both teaching elders and ruling elders, need the prayers of God's people. If Paul, the apostle Paul, was on that razor's edge between faith and unfaith, And he needed the prayers of God's people. How much more do you need to be praying for the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, I learned this week uh, that there is a group of people, of LBTQ folks, that are dedicated to visiting evangelical, conservative evangelical churches in order to out them as being friendly or unfriendly to their cause. And already in the Presbyterian Church in America, you can go onto their website and you can see Presbyterian churches, large and small, Presbyterian churches like this one, that they have labeled as either friendly or unfriendly to homosexuals and transgendered folks and all of these things. Um... I have friends who, whose churches are labeled on that website. That's the world in which we live in. Where we'll be labeled as friendly or unfriendly according to the things that the Bible teaches. And that's terrifying. It's terrifying to know that there is going to come a time when we're going to be held to the world standard of whether or not we are tolerant or not. And will be called things and maybe even persecuted for the things that the Bible teaches. What's the only thing that's going to keep this church from staying with the scriptures and standing on the truth of God's word? It's not my ability to understand this word. It's not me and my giftedness. It's not the elders and their strength. It's God working for in and through this church, as you pray for us. So, the final request, brothers, pray for us. Then he gives a final greeting. Look in verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Uh, Now, maybe, there's maybe no verse that gets um, conservative Christian men more nervous than this one about greeting each other with a holy kiss. Um, I think too often we'll get uh, lost in kind of the context of the holy kiss and all of those things. Let me explain that a little bit. This is a very common cultural way of greeting folks in the Middle East uh, and in the ancient world. But even today in the Middle East, this is a common way uh, that brothers would greet each other and close friends and family members. It's actually a close way that uh, that you and I will greet our family as well. Um, we, I mean, we live in South Louisiana uh, French folks tend to be more uh, um, um, uh, affectionate than other folks out there. And so 
um, you know, kissing among family members kind of happens more often. That's what he's talking about. He says, greet the brothers with a brotherly kiss, with a holy kiss. And you understand the closeness of that kind of kiss whenever you, you go back to what Judas did in betraying Jesus. Because Jesus, Judas walked up to one of his best friends and kissed Jesus to identify him uh, to the guards and to those who were to arrest him. The reason why that was an ultimate betrayal was because Judas used the, the highest expression of affection for a brother in order to betray him. So the holy kiss is really just a, a warm greeting, a culturally approved, acceptable warm greeting. I think it's actually more important for us to look at the two of the other words that are in here where he says, greet, greet the brothers, but how, who of the brothers should we greet? All of them. So let's look at those two things. He says, greet all of the brothers, and we're told the kind of relationship that we need to have with each other in Christ's church Uh, And with whom we are to have that relationship. And here's the point that he's making. That Christians are to be close with each other. We are to be close. And another scary word. Intimate with each other. We are to be welcoming. And receiving. Not just into this fellowship on Sunday mornings. Which by the way. Y'all are amazing at being welcoming and inviting on Sunday mornings. But it shouldn't stop there. When he says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss, he's talking about welcoming each other, not just into the church service, but into your lives. You only will share that kind of greeting with someone that you truly love. I mean, the common greeting that we have in our day is the handshake at a distance, right? We try to stay away. Um, In most ancient cultures and many uh, other cultures, uh, they actually want to smell the breath of the other person that they're talking to. That even smelling the nasty, stinky breath of the person that you're talking to is an indication of closeness. Okay, We we do this from far away. They they get close and they want to smell each other. Um, We would rather not smell anything from anyone else ever. But Paul says, no, that's not what we're to be like. We are to be close and intimate and inviting and welcoming. So that's how we're to be, but we're also to be that way with who? He says, with all of the believers. With all of them, not just with the ones that we like. Not just the ones that are like us. Not just with the believers that are easy to be around, but with all of them, regardless of their race, regardless of their denomination, regardless of whether or not they pull for Alabama football or not, we are to love all kinds of Christians. And that would have been important in this day when Jews and Gentiles were separated from each other, sometimes literally by walls. And in Christ's church, Paul says, no, greet. If you're a Gentile, greet the Jews. If you're a Jew, greet the Gentiles. Greet all true believers. And here's the beautiful thing about that. As we are showing that kind of closeness with each other, then the world takes notice of that. My campus minister, Keith Berger, uh, he was a uh, CO in the Army. Um, and he, um, he had a, a very good friend named Chris Six. Um, and Chris was an atheist. He did not love the Lord, hated everything about Christians. But Keith, 
was a good friend to Chris. Now, in, in their uh, company, there was another man who was a Christian. Um, and as close as Keith was with Chris, um, Keith had a relationship with this other man that Chris didn't understand. The other man was a Christian. Keith was a Christian. They would wake up early together and they would pray together before everyone else woke up. They would talk to each other about the things of the Lord. They would hug each other in hard times and they would bear each other up in difficult seasons. And Chris Six looked at Keith Berger at one point and said, I wanna have, I wanna, I, I'm glad we're friends, but I want to be friends with you like you're friends with him. Keith said, you can't be because you don't know the Lord. Chris says, well, I want what you have. And he says, well, you can have it. Let me introduce you to Jesus. As we show closeness with each other, the world notices and they want what we have. So Paul says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss and show the world just what it means to be loved by Christ. Thirdly, he says, he gives in this, in verse 27, a final oath. A final oath. Um, And we say oath, another word that can be substituted for oath. Oath is kind of the positive word, but the negative word that can be substituted is curse. Um, That's what an oath is. It's a curse. So it could read like this. I put you under a curse before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This is very strong language. Um, We are not to enter into oaths lightly. Uh, We are to consider these things. Uh, Whenever we make a contract with anyone, I mean, think about just making a normal everyday contract. Um, Think about the kinds of things that you have to make a contract and get lawyers involved with. Whenever you make that kind of thing, uh, it's a serious thing, right? And, and when we make some kind of spiritual oath, we should, we should make it that much more serious because we're not just dealing with property or matters of money or resources, but we're actually dealing with proper, or things of spiritual importance, of life and death importance. And so um, I'll give you another example of what this means. It's kind of like this. We, we take oaths in this day when you go before a court and you have to... Um, be a witness or you have to go in the witness stand, what do you say? You go in there and you used to put your hand on the Bible. I don't know that they make you do this anymore, but you say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you God? And say, yes, I do. The thing that we leave out of that is, and if you don't, let God strike you dead. <laughs> okay? That's what's intended there. If you lie on the witness stand, what you're saying is, let God strike me dead. And that's what Paul is doing here. I put you under our oath. So the leaders of the church who receive this letter are put under a curse by Paul that if they do not then turn around and read this letter publicly, then they are calling down the curse of God on them. That's what they're doing. And this is no idle threat. If you remember, um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 5 or 6, Ananias and Sapphira. I can't remember which, which chapter it is. But they lied to the apostles about how much money they, they got for selling a plot of land. And they lie to the church. And they go to Peter and they give him the money. And then what happens? Ananias drops dead. And then a little bit later, later his wife comes in and they ask her a question about the money. And then she drops dead. Because they called down a curse of God upon their own heads. This is no idle threat. 
So what is Paul doing here? Paul understands his position and his office in the church. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has been delegated by Christ to go and build the church of Jesus Christ. And the apostles were conscious of what they were doing. They were writing scripture. They understood that they were writing scripture. If Paul thought that he was just writing his opinion, he would not put anyone under an oath to do this. But he says, because this is the word of God, because this word of God is life-giving, the leaders of the church need to make sure they are reading this publicly. Paul knew that he was working through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. And so for the leaders, again, to neglect this would be to neglect God's life-giving word and the word of salvation and the word for the growth of Christians. So Paul says, don't neglect the reading, and I'll add to that, the preaching of the word of God, the explanation of the word of God. So what's the application for us? Well, I'm not an apostle. Um, The the age of the apostles was ended in the first century A.D. Uh, But what happened is as the apostles uh, went everywhere that they went and did the work of building the church, you know what they did? They appointed elders and they trained pastors and evangelists and other folks to take up the mantle to do the work of the apostles. And what was the work of those pastors and elders? It was the teaching and preaching and the reading of the word of God. And so for us, we need to be reminded that we should not neglect the reading of the word of God or neglect the preaching, sitting under the preaching or the teaching of the word of God. You have to remember, they didn't have access to these letters like we did. They would maybe have one, uh, one copy of this. And they would have to all gather together, probably in one person's house, to hear this letter being read. And they were absolutely dependent upon the pastor to read these things to them. Some of them may have been literate. Others of them, most of them, probably weren't very literate. They were dependent upon the reading of this letter to hear from God. But guess what? You probably have in your home, I'm guessing, ten Bibles... Each of you probably have at least 10 Bibles in your home. They had none, and God, or Paul called a curse down upon them if they neglected the reading of their Bibles. And you have 10 Bibles in your homes. How much are you reading it? But not only that, on your phone right now, you can get thousands and thousands of translations of the Bible. And you can get applications on your phone that teach you how to read it in the original Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) You have access to the word of God like no one in the world could have ever dreamt of even 50 years ago. Are you reading the word of God? Or do you neglect it until Sunday morning when I get up and I read a few verses to you? Here's the thing, if you are neglecting the reading of the word of God, if you're neglecting listening to the preached word of God, then you are putting yourself under this curse. There's a warning there, and it's meant to be a strong warning. The last reminder that he gives in verse 28, 
says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The final reminder, the lasting note that he wants to leave is the grace of God to God's people. Remember what he said last week. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He wanted them to know God as the God of peace. And now he says, but now know God as the God of grace as well. You are under grace. Um, In the original Greek, this actually reads this way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. There's no word to be in that sentence. Translators actually will supply that for us because in English it doesn't make sense if you don't have a verb in that sentence. He just says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. He doesn't say to be with you or will be with you or anything like that. It's not the promise that it's going to happen, that God's grace will be with you, but it's a reminder that you are, if you have faith in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have his grace. That's the state that you live in. You live in the state of grace. God's grace rests upon his people. If you're in Christ, this is your present reality. God never removes his grace from you. God never withdraws his favor from you. And there is nothing that you can do. There is no sin that you commit, no matter how great or how small, that will ever have God remove his pleasure from you as one of his children. And if that's the case, if you live in the state of grace, then really what's left to worry about in this world? If God has placed upon you all of his love, all of his favor, um, every last bit of affection that he can give you because of Jesus Christ, then, then why worry about anything else? What is there left to fear in this world? If your Lord has been gracious to you, and if he is gracious to you, and you can't do anything to lose that grace, then why are you working so hard to try to make God happy? He's already done it. He is pleased with you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is only for those that are his children. You can only have that security if you belong to him. If your hope And your faith is in Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Well, in conclusion, in these four verses, Paul gives us a portrait of a Christian. It's a a great picture of what it means to be a Christian. Someone who is dependent upon God in prayer. Someone who loves all the brothers. Someone who loves the, the word of God and puts themselves under the authority of God. And someone who lives under the grace of God and because of that lives a gracious life toward others. That's a, that's a picture of what a Christian is. Prayerful, prayerful, dependent, loving the word of God, living graciously. And that should allow you an opportunity to reflect on your own life. Is your life that way? Are you dependent upon God? Or do you see yourself as dependent upon yourself? Do you love all the brothers or just the ones that you get along with? Do you love the word of God and 
and love to listen to the word of God and long to, to be with the Lord in the word? And do you live a life of grace towards others? Or there's another portrait here, a portrait of a non-Christian, someone who is self-dependent, someone who loves self and what, what you can get more than anything else. Do you love your own word and your own authority? And do you see yourself living not graciously toward others, but wrathful toward others because they're not bending themselves to your will? There's a great picture here of a Christian and a non-Christian. Which one are you? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this book. I thank you for the apostle who wrote this book by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, and I thank you for the the way that allows us a time of self-reflection on our own hearts to be reminded that that you have called us uh, to live lives of grace because you have shown us grace, that you have called us to live lives of love because you have first loved us. Father, I pray that you would provoke our hearts in these things. Uh, Lord, we recognize that uh, we can't do these things perfectly, uh, but by your Spirit, we are growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so uh, convict our hearts, give us repentance where we need to be uh, repentant, Father. Help us to love one another even as we have been loved, and help us uh, to show grace to all. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.